This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, the Traveler has come! Hello everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review and critique show where time, space, and podcasts are not the separate things they all appear. I am Gip, and I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dr. Izix. Hi! And this week we've got what is, is a very, very mixed episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because I do think, and I've seen a lot of people talk about how it's one of the better episodes in season one because season one was full of a lot of weird episodes. Yes. <laughs> um, but overall, it's always been one of the ones that I didn't like as much because it's very dull. It's pretty boring. It's like, well, here's some stuff that happens and then we resolve the plot. Yeah. The cool. plot kind of resolves itself. <laughs> yes. And a lot of it is about how special wesley is as a special boy who's special yes <laughs> and uh did you did you know he's special <laughs> yeah all right so this episode is called where no one has gone before because we're getting inclusive mm-hmm. by the time we hit next generation yes uh, we're not just men we're, we're also people who are not men yeah we are ones we are yes, one we are we haven't introduced we the are board like yet so total, to- totally one man which also kind of fits with this episode. <laughs> this one's a little weird, um, kind of story-wise, because this is actually based on a book that was written as one of the extended, like, original series stories. Huh. So it happens twice in the canon of Star Trek now? I don't know if it's canon. I guess it depends how canon the books are. They're, they're questionable. <laughs> this is based on the Star Trek novel called The Wounded Sky by uh, Diane uh, Dooney, which was published in uh, 1983, where Kirk and the original Enterprise test an experimental propulsion system that bends space-time and creates instantaneous travel to somewhere. But it all goes wrong, and they wind up in a bad place. Well, uh, wait, wait, well, that happens in Discovery. I mean, a lot of this stuff happens, <laughs> happens before, I guess, so... Lots of stuff happens. Yes. <laughs> Just, you know, mere universe in that case. Anyway. <laughs> so she's actually a pretty well-known sci-fi and fantasy writer. Um, made a young adult Wizards series and several Star Trek novels. And uh, did this script for TNG. I think this was her only TNG script. But it's just an, ad- an adaptation of the novel. Which, you know, fine. Worked out. Yeah, that works. Wow, she's also involved in the Flintstones. Yeah, this was also <laughs> kind of co-written slash script helped story revised by uh, michael reeves who also helped with did like several young adult novels and some star wars books and had some other screenwriting credits like twilight zone Hmm. yeah that yes (laughs) that's kind of interesting because this one's one of the uh it's it's like the whole thing is based around people who wrote books so it's not as many it's not as much as as much like uh, TV writers, it's book writers who came in and did a story, which interestingly happens a lot in Star Trek stuff. Indeed. Um, though I guess in this case, it kind of is, gets ends up being reflected to a certain degree in how much the main cast kind of doesn't matter at all. Because, you know, when you're sort of adapting a book, you know, the, 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 what would be the main cast was someone else entirely. When you sort of adapt it into this uh, you know, new show, you kind of have to sort of like, well, I guess you're taking this spot and we're just kind of, eh, they're here i guess yeah i know the the the, the main crew is kind of sidelined in this it's kind of a 
bit of a problem with the story generally. So yeah, someone wrote a book and then adapted the book and it's kind of the, their original characters take center stage and the crew mm-hmm. reacts around them. Well, I guess to a certain degree, this would perhaps reflect uh, what, uh, the reality that the crew is still working to mesh. They're not necessarily all friends yet. So, you know, they don't, they, they haven't become genre savvy about what's going to be going on here yet. Yeah. So they're like, well, I guess we just react. <laughs> I think they have a lot of good crew moments with this. I think the general idea works pretty well. Um, you've yeah. got two main problems that we'll get into, but is that they're centering it very much on Riker's interactions with the original characters. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a lot of it is the original characters, but also it's a story very much about engineering and they don't really yet have a codified engineering department. <laughs> it's like, well, here's today's uh, chief engineer. He'll be hanging out for a little bit. Yeah, uh, we'll get to. <laughs> so uh, that transitions us into guest stars. They've got two original characters who uh, Stanley Carmel is playing Kaczynski. He had a long-running film and TV career with a lot of guest appearances, Mission Impossible, Knight Rider, a lot of other TV shows. He's uh, very well known for playing, yeah, Dr. Uh, Kroger. I think that's Kroger. I haven't watched Monk in a long time on Monk. Yeah, neither have I. (laughs) Dr. Charles something, I think, right? I think it's Kroger. (laughs) I I liked Monk. I just didn't keep up with the series very much. Um, he played that character until his unexpected and tragic death in 2008. So yeah, very That's well known for that role. Very yes. unfortunate, but final and best known role. We also have Eric Minukin. Uh, I apologize if I'm pronouncing that wrong. He played the Traveler. He'd had a pretty short-lived acting career, actually. Several guest and recurring roles on, on shows of the time, like Hill Street Blues and Madlock. He was uh, on kind of the short list in the running for playing Data before it was given to Spiner. Um, but he retired from acting in the 90s and transitioned into being an attorney. So he's doing fine. Oh, yeah, as you, as you do. Yeah, It's sort of one of those things that people don't think about too often that sometimes actors kind of just disappear because they like, you know, I want to do something different. And they do. And so you know, they become an attorney's or they become a middle management at some random company or... You know, they, you know, uh, go something maybe, you know, parallel to, uh, you know, acting like, you know, going into uh, film production, uh, just, you know, going behind the, uh, the camera instead. Or, or, or sometimes they, they vanish into the ether, never to be seen again. Well, you have that thing. Acting is very difficult. And I have that thing, like one in one in like 20 actors succeeds in any way. But then we're mm-hmm. always surprised when someone only had three roles and then yes. stopped, stopped doing it. It's not a very viable career. Yeah, it's a uh, very, uh, you know, hit or miss as far as, you know, even getting work at all. So gotta oh, be careful. Final character is one who's actually going to show up again. This is just his first thing. We have Biff Yeager, uh, who plays Argyle, who is the chief engineer for the episode. Mm-hmm. He's also been in a lot of film and TV shows. He was in Wonder Years. He had a guest appearance on Scrubs, and he was in Gilmore Girls for a bit. Uh, he's actually the longest-running first-season chief engineer. <laughs> so uh, I guess we'll be seeing him a few more times, right? You see him a couple more times. He also gets mentioned. There's at least one upcoming episode where they mention him, but he never mm-hmm. appears on screen. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, Argyle, you're the most successful first-season Star Trek engineer that's not named Scotty, I guess. Yep. <laughs> well, Scotty was also a second- and third-season engineer. So. Yes. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, I, I'm not trying to like, you know, poo poo, like, you know, uh, you know, O'Brien, you know, he was an engineer. He was, you know, uh, the, uh, t- you know, tech guy. It's different. And Lana Torres, well, she'd like broke a guy's nose in the, you know, in the first season and, the, <laughs> you know, and so on and so forth. <laughs> That's why she's the best engineer. Jordy never broke <laughs> yes. anyone's nose. <laughs> that we saw. You know? All right. Uh, we do have a few other little teeny little bit players around, but I couldn't find as much for them. And uh, they show up for about two minutes of screen time apiece. So this is our guest cast. Like the, the, the Victoria Dillard who plays a ballerina. It's like, okay. Um, neat. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Picard's mom is up for five minutes. Oh, yes. So I guess they're trying to make a bigger thing about in the new Picard season, which is only three episodes in at the time of us recording this. So I don't know what they're doing with that. So uh, so she'll be back, I guess, uh, you know, if you're uh, watching everything chronologically as far as when it comes out. So watch out for that. So, okay, we should jump in. This is a weird, weird freaking episode. Mm-hmm. I hope it's going to so make space. sense. Space is big. It is big. <laughs> So the Enterprise is rendezvousing with the USS Fearless to take on Kaczynski, who's a Starfleet propulsion expert who wants to run an efficiency experiment on the Enterprise's warp drive. But Riker, Data, and the Engineer are kind of concerned because they've looked at Kaczynski's data, and it's gibberish. Yeah, it's like uh, if I were to say, I'm going to uh, adjust the uh, uh, subspace uh, chromodynamic uh, you know, uh, uh, gear matrix in order to uh, get the uh, you know asymptotes all arranged in the proper uh, uh, format, well, w- w- don't you understand the skip one? Yeah, I think it's more gibberish than their normal <laughs> gibberish. Apparently, there's technobabble and then there's super technobabble. So since Riker is so you know concerned with this, Picard puts him in charge of things because you can do that as captain. It's like, well, you're a problem now, dude. Huh, you complain, you get a deal with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when Kaczynski arrives, he's arrogant and angry and dismissive it's like the most Mm -hmm. annoying person in the universe yes (laughs) now uh you know it is important to note perhaps that he doesn't have like usual uh rank stuff on his collar so he's like a specialist who's like not a standard like officer sort of person so they're like well we can't really just order him to be nice to us crap (laughs) yeah he's just a random specialist he's accompanied by a very polite, soft-spoken assistant who's not human and whose name is impronounceable. Mm-hmm. And he has a lumpy head, and uh, TNG's kind of beige. He's, like, dull gray compared to that. So Kaczynski pushes his way to engineering. Troy's a little concerned because she can't sense anything from the assistant with her telepathy because it's basically like he's not there, so she can't really tell what's going on with this new random alien dude. Wait, is, is he an android? Possibly. I would imagine that would be my first thought. Is like, you know, like Data, I don't read anything. Yeah. This guy, I don't read anything. Or something, but, you know, apparently. Or, or maybe maybe he's a fringy. There's, yeah, there's some aliens who you can't read, or alternately can, depends on which episode you're in, but, you know. Yes. <laughs> so, they get to engineering, and Kaczynski dismisses their concerns out of hand, because it's had the same conversation on every single ship. They enter the formulas, they don't do anything in the simulations, he does it, they go, oh my god, the engines did work! Look at that! <laughs> well, uh, maybe our simulations need to be updated. Uh, how would we do that, Kaczynski? No, never mind. He's He just yeah. gets to do it. <laughs> just shut up. I'm a genius. Well, alrighty then. Meanwhile, his assistant is entering calculations and chatting to Wesley, who is here. Yes, he's working on a school project, apparently, and, you know, just in main engineering, not just a random console somewhere. Wesley finds ways to improve the warp formulas that the guy's entering, and the assistant is very impressed. And they have a moment. Oh, they're uh, becoming good friends. I, I 
hope they're just becoming good friends. Since Riker and Argyle believe that Kaczynski is a fraud, they don't really see any reason to not let him do the thing because arguably it's just going to be a waste of time. So they may as well get it over with. (laughs) They begin the experiment and something does go wrong because the assistant starts to sort of phase out of existence. And only Wesley is paying attention to the assistant because everyone else is looking at Kaczynski. Kaczynski, what have you done? I have no idea, but it's neat. And the ship passes warp 10, gets Uh-oh. off of the warp scale. This is before we've hit the warp 10 barrier evolution thing. Yes. Uh, before and after, because everyone forgets about that. Everyone forgets. That was the dumbest episode. It never happened to go away. <laughs> Don't worry. Well, if uh, the crew's going to start turning into, uh, you know, uh, you know, super evolved ultra humans, uh, we'll let you know. They finally get the <laughs> ship to stop. With the brief discussion of, we don't know what will happen if we stop at this speed. It's like, because no one's ever been this speed. Stop the dang ship. So they stopped, and they're in an entirely new galaxy. They're, in fact, two galaxies over. M33. It's a, it's a hell of a place. Yeah. 2,700,000 light years away. Well, it's still kind of the local region of the universe, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> so in engineering, the assistant's exhausted. Uh, Wesley talks to him about space, time, and thought, and how they're all sort of the same thing. And he goes, no, those ideas are too dangerous for society. They will kill you or something. Just shush. Shut up. <laughs> you you are speaking the heresy. They'll get you killed. Do not do that, child. Yeah. Kaczynski's really excited, though. Picard is, like, really annoyed. He's like, our ship is stranded in another galaxy. Because then he's like, look, look, I made speed happen. Isn't that amazing? Aren't I the best? <laughs> I will issue in a new era of exploration. So uh, they do mention the Triangulum uh, Galaxy, uh, which is actually another name for M33. So I just wanted to add that in there. Oh, fun. Yes. They used real <laughs> galaxy names. Yep. <laughs> I do think it's interesting how they show that they're in another galaxy because, like, everything looks weird. But this could be, mm-hmm. like, you don't know what half of our galaxy looks like. This could be anywhere. Just because the stars are a different color. You know, just because, you know, you're in another galaxy doesn't mean that physics doesn't work the same way, guys. Not yet. Not yet, at least. (laughs) Crap. (laughs) Despite the very tempting idea of actually exploring this completely unknown different part of space they wound up in, they decide to try to get home. Because if they can get home, then they can just repeat the thing and send an actual science ship. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a pretty good idea. Wait a moment, aren't they... An exploration vessel? Uh, they're a frontline exploration ship. They don't have dedicated science something or others, ah. I guess. Oh, yeah, because they they're they supposed to be able to shoot things, too. Got it. Because they can shoot things. They have conference rooms. They're a general purpose vessel. So Kaczynski repeats his experiments exactly the way that he did before, but it doesn't actually work. It doesn't do <sighs> nothing. Hmm. Well, that's awkward. So the assistant does freak out a little bit and begins to phase again, and this does increase the ship's speed. Unfortunately... It goes even faster, and they wind up completely off the map, where, like, blue clouds and energy light thingies are just flying around. Yeah, so uh, you you go from, uh, you know, our galaxy to a distant galaxy to this isn't really a galaxy anymore. This is maybe even space-time. Yeah, what is this? For all we know, the Enterprise is shrunk and is inside somebody's nose. We, <laughs> we, we just don't know. That could be fun. That could be an interesting <laughs> one. <laughs> We've now transitioned into inner space. Yes. <laughs> so this time, even Riker saw the assistant phase out, proving that Kaczynski is not doing anything. It's all the assistant dude. Also, Wesley did try to tell him before, and he went, shut up. Go away. Yes. 
And now he's like, well, darn, I should have listened. Ah, Riker, you you need to become genre savvy. I, I know that only comes when you get the beard eventually, but, you know, mm. you could listen to Wesley every once in a while, I guess, right? Mm, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> so Picard decides that it's time to head down to engineering. And uh, on the bridge, after he leaves, weird stuff starts happening. Worf gets a targ, randomly pig thing appears. Yeah. Tasha gets a cat and then has a really horrible flashback to her mad max colony oh dear uh hmm uh yeah. are, are they gonna mention the uh the, the the sort of gangs we got here yeah they do yeah they are oh. we're not gonna but they yeah, do that's 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 awkward again this is the only thing like this is really it's a really shitty thing to say about the first season but mm-hmm. i feel like the fact that they spoilers i guess kill off tasha later is good because they really had no clue what they were going to do with her character and backstory, and it was going to go somewhere bad. Yeah, it's unfortunate she's you know now gone from the show, but given what they were presenting so far, yeah, yeah, it just was going to be just end in tears. Yeah, I like her as a performer. I like what she does with the character. The stuff they were doing with her character and backstory was not going to be handled well in the 80s and 90s. It just wasn't. Yes. The only way that you would handle that well now is by not putting it in in the first place, which is what most people do now. Yes. (laughs) It's like, we're not going to have this sort of backstory because, well, it would be terrible. Yeah, let's not. It's just not. Right, so there's that. Picard leaves the turbo lift and almost falls into open space. That's an interesting one. As you do, you know. The outside of the turbo lift does become a corridor again. Uh, He passes another crew member who's dancing around like a ballerina. Um, There's another dude who's actually completely disconnected from anything else that's happening. (laughs) Who is playing a violin in a Baroque-style quartet. Complete with powdered wigs with random dudes there, yeah. Yeah. And it later like shows that he was imagining it because that's what we're getting to. Everyone's imagination things are becoming real. Get one. We're in imagination land. We are. <laughs> imagination. <laughs> you know, you know, rainbow uh, gesture here. Yes. Anyway. This dude winds up, turns out he was just sitting alone in a random room. Like I get that they're showing us the imagination stuff, but this guy doesn't interact with anyone else in the crew at all, oh. ever. <laughs> At least the ballerina, Picard walks by, sees her dancing around, goes, what are you doing? Oh, uh, I, I was dancing. Um, hello, Captain. <laughs> so in the hallway, Picard runs into his mother and uh, asks her what's going on, but is interrupted by Riker before she can give him an answer. He's also very annoyed. Well, Riker is uh, prone to uh, being a little annoying uh, at times here in the first season, especially. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's in character. Yeah, that's true. Before the beard, he was an annoying character. Finally, they reach engineering. Um, they quickly realize that Kaczynski has, in fact, been doing nothing. Uh, his assistant is now unconscious and is the only person who can get them back. Well, this is awkward. Uh, we, sh- we should probably make sure he's healthy and happy and things like that. Otherwise, we might be stuck in imagination land forever. Yep. Uh, Kaczynski, uh, can we just say you're fired at this point? Or do you have anything to contribute going forward at this point? Seems like maybe, but yeah. <laughs> You know, we'll get there later. So um, they're also now figured out that they're in a place where their thoughts become reality. So Picard gives everyone an order to focus on their work. Everyone focus, please. Yes. uh, Don't use your imagination because it might become real. And then everyone who is not on duty suddenly starts having really, really 
wild things happen. We'll just leave it at that. Mm. Yep. Yep. Think on that for a minute. Just don't. Mm-hmm. I just just imagine what they would do if this was one of the new Paramount shows where they're allowed to show whatever. Yep. <laughs> Lots of things. So they take the assistant to sick bay where their instruments can't even detect that he exists. So this is going to be a problem. Wait, wait, maybe, <laughs> maybe he's a dark matter android. <laughs> Picard orders him to be woken up, even though it could do more harm than good. But uh, interestingly, and I guess plot conveniently, their stimulants still work fine on him. So, great. Well, it's because, you know, Crusher's like, you know, it might kill him, but it should wake him up. So my imagination might kill him or it might wake him up. So it does one of those two. So the assistant identifies himself as a traveler. He's a member of a species that just wanders about. He's not going anywhere. He's just sort of exploring their reality. And uh, he has an understanding of propulsion and things that he uses to, to kind of trade for passage on ships. So in some ways, he's kind of an explorer like they are. Yeah. Uh, he has the ability, his, he and his other members of his cohort, not necessarily species, as we kind of find out later. Um, the people he hangs out with. They have the power to focus thought around them kind of like a lens, and then they can use that to do things that wouldn't normally be possible in our understanding of space-time. So, uh, in, in, in other words, they are like the uh, folks from Mag- uh, Magus 2, except they could do that anywhere. Yeah, basically. It's nice. That's fun. Yeah. Maybe the Mangus 2 people are this guy. There was a very wide variety of Mangus 2 people. True. All sorts of body types, species, uh, magical hats, uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, also, there's a thing that I like where Riker goes, well, if you guys have been around, why haven't we ever heard of you? He's like, well, up to now, you've been too boring for us to bother with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, know, we're, you know, we're trying to keep low key here. So why would we make ourselves known to people that are not interesting? If you were interesting, we'd say hello. But yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> come on. He agrees to try and help them get back. Uh, even though it's going to take all his strength, he recognizes he messed up, so he's going to fix it. But first, he has to get Picard alone to tell him that Wesley is more special than anyone ever knows, and he needs to be encouraged, but don't tell him he's special. Oh, uh, okay. So, uh, wait, does that mean we're going to have to go full uh, negging on him? Tell him he's crap all the time, but keep giving him promotions? That would explain a lot. <laughs> that would explain a lot of their dynamic moving forward. <laughs> So they bring the Traveler back to engineering. Picard orders the crew to think positive towards the Traveler, which you know, makes sense. If you're in a place where thoughts become reality, tell everyone to imagine your home now. Uh, that might be useful, you know? They're, they're telling the, uh, the random crew members to concentrate on the Traveler when most of the people on the ship yeah. probably haven't met him. is maybe a little awkward. <laughs> concentrate on the Traveler. Who? What? Who? <laughs> Um, wait, I know this one. It Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters revelance. So the, the travelers come. Oh, uh oh. So, uh, Mr. Stay Puff is here. <laughs> there was a joke thing I saw, uh, the other day that I really loved. It was just this whole collaborative writing thing people had done of just imagine if every episode had the captain announcing stuff to the crew the way he does in this one, because the crew <laughs> should know what's happening. Like, yes. so, by the way, if you see Commander Riker wandering around, but he's in a yellow shirt instead of a red shirt, that's not Commander Riker, but broadly fine, you know, carry on with your day. <laughs> <laughs> this is an acceptable alternative clone. Do not worry about it. <laughs> so the Traveler asks Kaczynski to be at the computer because he's been doing something integral to the process. So we don't have to feel too bad about Kaczynski. Yeah, put some math in and it will help, maybe. 
Maybe, yeah. And they start. At first, it doesn't really do anything. They seem to be sort of stuck. But Wesley gives the Traveler some moral support, and he begins to phase. They go back to Super Warp, and the Traveler completely vanishes. So he's clearly sacrificed himself for the good of the crew to get them home. Maybe, sort of, yeah. This means he will never appear again, right? I hope so, because if he does, it would be in a very bad episode where we'd have to unpack a lot of colonial politics that I really don't want to, if I'm being well, honest. Well, 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 maybe before that episode, uh, he might show up in one where uh, someone who was you know, very peripheral to all this uh, going on was is trapped in some sort of warp bubble, maybe. Maybe. I think that might be better than the colonial law uh, one, honestly. But this is all hypothetical, of course. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's never coming back. We know this. Yeah. (laughs) So they wind up back where they were. Because of his help, Card orders Wesley to the bridge. And his orders prohibit Wesley from being on the bridge. So, you know, there's a problem. So Picard decides that the best thing to do is to make Wesley an acting ensign. Until such time as he can apply to Starfleet Academy. Well, uh, I guess that means he gets uh, like one of those empty pips, right? Yeah. And uh, maybe a uniform? Um, probably For some reason, not a uniform. I don't know why. I guess acting ensigns yeah. don't get a uniform. <laughs> You've been conscripted, kid. Uh, you don't get a uniform, though, even though we can, you know, create one out of nothing, basically. Unless that stripey shirt he keeps wearing is a uniform for acting ensigns that we heretofore <laughs> have not seen. Because, you know, how often do you see an acting ensign around? Well, maybe the stripey bit is to uh, signify that he could be any sort of uh, officer. Yeah, see, it's just, he's a rainbow officer. <laughs> I am all the officers in potential. <laughs> this also means that this this is just pure nepotism, yeah. right? Because there are <laughs> enlisted crew members. Starfleet is, as much as we focus on it, Starfleet is not all officers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like O'Brien is a chief, which is chief petty officer, which is the highest enlisted rank you can have. There are enlisted members of Starfleet. Indeed. So Wesley just got got put into an officer position. Because he's there and some alien told Picard to do so. Yes. And also he's the uh, doctor's son. Yeah. And it doesn't make a lot of sense because one of the main things that differentiates like officers from enlisted people in our current modern American military is that you like go to college for it you go to school to become an officer but in this world we've got like universal everything everyone has gone to school for things I guess you skip Starfleet Academy but we actually have no idea what the Starfleet enlistment process is like well if we go with uh, the most prominent enlisted uh, uh, character that we run into Chief O'Brien again uh, it appears to be that you uh, join Starfleet as enlisted. You go fight in a, a terrible war for a few years, and then you hide out on the Enterprise until someone notices that you're competent. Yeah. Yes. Then you're basically an officer, even though you're not an officer. Yes. Everyone treats you as such, though uh, Bashir can order you around sometimes. Yeah. Now even Wesley can order around Chief Petty Officer O'Brien, who's been in Starfleet for 20 freaking years. Yeah. O'Brien... So I guess maybe this is the first episode where O'Brien truly suffers. Yeah, I think so, even though he doesn't exist yet, technically. <laughs> this is the problem that you kept hitting in Vietnam. I know I'm on a wild tangent at this point, but this was the problem that you kept hitting in Vietnam, is enlisted soldiers with years of experience would get this fresh academy ensign suddenly, their lieutenant suddenly shoved on them, and they'd have no idea what they were doing. It's like, well, I'm in Vietnam now. Uh, I have no idea what we're supposed to be doing other than what my superior officers tell me. 
And my enlisted people say that that's idiotic and they'll get them all killed. Well, uh, we'll see how this goes then. There was also a weird prevailing military wisdom of the time where they were trying to run the military like a business for some freaking reason. And they had some harebrained idea that rotating the officers around so that they never formed a personal connection with any of the people they commanding would be a good idea. Well, that's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the sort of thing like Putin would do when he's like, I don't want my officers to rise up against me, so I'm going to keep them, you know, disconnected from the people they're commanding. A.K.A. it's going to make them, you know, less loyal to the, uh, you know, their commanding officers and those commanding officers less able to get them to do things. Yep. Also, just one random, dis other, one final disconnected piece of Vietnam War trivia. Um, the president of the time was a big fan of Tab Soda, and they contracted with Tab Soda to sell a bunch of it to the government to the extent where instead of getting emergency water deliveries, they were dropping parachuted loads of Tab Soda Oof. on people. Like, literally Oof. on people in some cases, in fact. Oof. That is... Now, I do have to ask, though, uh, which president was this? Uh, was it uh, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, or Ford? <laughs> I can't remember if it was Ford or Nixon. <laughs> for uh, those unaware, we were in Vietnam for a good while. Yeah. Yeah, we were. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was Ford or Nixon, but I can't remember offhand. Well, I guess I'd lean probably Nixon because Ford was only kind of overseeing things for a little bit before we kind of pulled out. So, But then again dropping tab on people might be something you'd do mm -hmm. so i think yeah. tab was around for a while so it probably wasn't ford so uh, i guess maybe this is something for us to keep a tab on and uh, look on uh, look uh, up later yeah so uh so anyway that's that has yeah. nothing to do with anything but <laughs> well it is tangentially connected to all of this uh discussion here so uh is there anything else in the, in the synopsis to get through no that's the end wesley gets promoted and they leave Yes. It's like, I'll tell my mom about this later, but I want to hang out with you guys first. I'm like, okay, kid. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go explore stuff now. And then he did. Yeah. <laughs> the end. The end. <laughs> Let's leave. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's get the hell out of here, as Kirk would say sometimes. <laughs> yeah, there's an interesting bit to talk about in here on two sides, but the episode doesn't actually want to explore it in any particular way, which is, is kind of odd. It's got some conceptually interesting stuff going on. This idea of like time, space, thought, perception, your, your thoughts and imaginings literally creating reality. But they don't want to, they don't actually go into that. They just go, Wesley's a special boy. Fine, I'll take you home now. So, okay. <laughs> so uh, we're going to hint at this being a thing as opposed to actually explore it as a concept. Yeah. Like, well, we're just being presented with the fact that this is a thing that exists and we are now in a, a place of existence where it's all very obvious, but we just want to leave, you know, because, you know, like what, even when they're in uh, M33 there, you know, at least Data's like, we could, you know, use this as an opportunity to explore, you know, but, you know, of course he's an Android and would outlive everyone else. So it's like fine for him. Um, but, um, you know, as far as, you know, this, you know, this weird imagination land here, it's like, well, let's just get the heck out of here because our imaginations are too uncontrollable, man. They don't go into whether data can create anything. That would be interesting, you know? Yeah, they don't explore that. That could be an interesting one to know, too. 
Yeah. It could also be a situation where it's like, okay, we're going to, you know, uh, uh, knock most of the crew out and only a few people we can trust to be able to c- control their minds, such as Data, probably Picard, the Traveler, Kozinski maybe, though he might have a moment where, you know, he gets angry at, uh, you know, somebody and is like, ah, and now there's a rage monster trying to kill them sort of th- situation. So, yeah, I guess they maybe ran out of time for that sort of thing. But all the same, you know, they could do some exploration where it's like, okay, if we don't trust everyone to be able to handle this right now, you know, what, how do we handle that then? Yeah. You could do some, you, so there's several places you could go with this. Mm -hmm. You could do some interesting interpersonal explorations of what everyone's imagining. How easy or hard is it for you to concentrate enough to control that? Mm -hmm. And, who gets to dictate reality versus not yes because there's some random stuff like who in the freaking world i'm not saying this wouldn't happen ever but it's an interesting one that like in one scene that i you know i passed over it a little bit because not very important in the grand scheme but there's a guy who's trapped in the corridor because he has imagined that the corridor is on fire mm-hmm. <laughs> why why do you just wander around the ship going, you know what? I wonder what would happen if that corridor was on fire. <laughs> oh, no, it is. Uh, <laughs> now I'm trapped in a T-intersection and I want to go through where the fire is at, but I can't. I'll say I've walked down, and unless I have a big pile of cardboard boxes by the door waiting to go down to the recycling, that's when I think about, you know, what if this hallway caught on fire? <laughs> But that's usually the only times I think of that when I'm wandering around the, the uh, halls. So I guess that would be a great opportunity to sort of explore the stray thoughts of various crew members beyond, you know, I want to go dancing or, you know, playing in a quartet or set the, the hallway on fire, I guess. Yeah, there's some uh, fun things in there. Like, like, those are fun, but why was she imagining being a ballerina? We don't know. I mean, that one I can see a little bit because it seems like she was doing inventory. Your mind is going to wander when you're doing inventory. Yes. <laughs> Just really bored. And so let's take, uh, like, uh, I really miss being in, uh, yeah, in ballet. And oh, I'm now wearing the appropriate thing. Hey, there's music playing. It's just like when I was back then. I'm going to go ahead and dance here because I don't know what's going on, but it's cool, I guess. Mm-hmm. I guess it's sort of like uh, Shore Leaf when they're like, oh, weird stuff is happening. Let's change it into the stress. Yeah, I found a random dress fall on a planet. Let's change. <laughs> that was an interesting one. Yes. You know, maybe that's just how people operate in the future. <laughs> but yeah, we didn't explore any of that stuff. Um, but I do think there's a thing in there that I'm um don't have my thoughts as organized as I'd like on this point because it's a difficult one to wrap around. Cuz I feel like they, like there's two completely different angles from which one could look at this. But you have this idea in the show, explicitly stated, that time and space aren't separate things. Fine, we all basically know that, even though on a perceptual level it's pretty much immaterial to our everyday lives. Immaterial to our everyday lives, unless you need to calculate some stuff involving GPS or something. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Um, (laughs) Thought is in there too, which is an interesting one, because you could either look at that as a... Uh, sort of a quantum thing. I don't know how much of that quantum theory was codified in the 80s because I don't know my my quantum history. I know they were futzing with that before this. 
well, which quantum history? What's interpretation? Are, are we going, uh, you know, uh, you know, you know, different schools of quantum, uh, you know, thought on this? Well, this one could be that your observations are literally creating reality. Hmm. I'm try- I always forget the name of the, the guy that uh, sort of uh, claimed that to be true, but not only it, you know, was that the only valid interpretation of quantum mechanics for him, but he was the only observer as well. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Which, which which would be a problem because he's now dead. So, oh. <laughs> so if that's true, we're all on to trouble. So <laughs> that at least makes some amount of conceptual sense because in your calculations, of course, nothing existed in your calculations until you started observing it because that's when you started observing it. So why would it exist <laughs> in your calculations before that? Well, it, you would say that, well, I didn't know it would exist, so why would it exist? And therefore, you can jump to, it doesn't. <laughs> I think the other thing that you can look at is one that was interesting because they did kind of call it out a little bit, is an interesting amount of sort of self-centeredness that you get to with this idea. That you, personally, your thoughts create reality itself. But how? what, what created me then? Mm-hmm. You can do a problem there. Yeah. <laughs> but the, I, it gets into this kind of maybe, maybe it's a thing that gets into this weird like mind-body separation that a lot of people like to have. That like your thoughts and consciousness exist 100% separately from your physical body and would in fact be able to continue existing without it. Like, not even in a spiritual way, like, I'm not trying to comment on afterlife stuff or things, but in a very literal, like, eventually we will evolve into an energy being or transfer our mind into a computer or something like that. And it would be 100% fully us, and there would be no exceptions to that or things that would be missing because we are not in a physical body anymore. Yeah. You know, like, this idea that that your consciousness is such a separate thing thing such a weird powerful thing such a like that's literally creating reality i keep seeing this this it, it reminds me of this argument that i keep seeing which is baffling to me that a lot of mathematicians have that because math can be used as an experimental model to represent a lot of things in the world that reality is literally formed out of math where my interpretation of all of that is no, math is a construct we have developed in order to explain how things work in reality. The way things work in reality is just how things work in reality. And if they worked in a different way, we'd have to construct our mathematics in order to uh, reflect that. It's also just like you observed the thing and then you created a model that explained the observation. And because you did that well enough to explain the observation you're saying that the model is now the same as the observation well uh hopefully we don't have a new model that is now much better to uh get you know uh, results you know say some sort of general relativity to uh over a step uh you know uh, the the reach of newton there uh that would just totally uh you know change how things work as far as you know the uh, the fringe bits you know because that because then that, that'd be just impossible i mean that our initial assumption that Things were, you know, this is the pure description of reality and now has made that reality, you know, would, would it make sense anymore? Because we have a new one. 
Well, the thing with this is that math does keep working and keeps holding up. You keep having to invent new bits of it in order for it to continue working. And those bits maintain internal logical consistency because it's the only way that an internally logical consistent framework can continue holding up and expanding. But mathematics is basically just an in, like both an incredibly simplistic but also potentially complex model. Mm-hmm. So it can be forced to fit a lot of different things. You can explain a lot of things with math because math is such an abstract, simplistic representation of what's going on. People also uh, tend to forget that there's a certain amount of assumptions that go into building a model uh, when you're you know, using math to model something in reality. It's like, okay, so we're going to you know, in, you know, include data of this type, but you know, so let's say we're, we're modeling population growth in a city. So we're going to, you know, uh, you know, include data about, you know, uh, you know, you know, the economy, you know, general, uh, you know, reproduction rates of citizens, uh, you know, immigration from other locations, uh, you know, so sometimes we might, uh, you know, uh, have a, you know, periodically we'd expect some event like this to change the trajectory in some fashion for a short amount of time, but it would eventually return to a, you know, previous sort of a, uh, you know, a, a growth pattern. Uh, and you can do all this sort of stuff, but in doing so, you're also explicitly not including information that could potentially still affect things. Some of this information is so, you know, some of this will be so minor of an impact that you might as well not. It's like, yes, yeah, sometimes people decide to move into a city, you know, based on what that name of the city sounds like in their mouths as they speak it. If they can't pronounce it well, they might decide to move somewhere else. It's a ridiculous sort of thing to factor into your uh, uh, calculations, but it might be something that changes one or two people's minds, and that would be, be you know result in your model not representing what you're trying to explain properly. In other words, you're going to miss something, so why pretend you have everything already put into your model? See, so I think the thing that gets me is this idea that you could explain everything. Not even with a model, because your model's always going to be at least a bit limited. Like we were even saying, like I was even saying earlier. So like, you need to know that space and time are the same thing. Space time is its own thing, according to relativistic physics, which is a model that keeps holding up the longer we use it. Maybe it'll get debunked by the time I put this episode out. Who knows? I'm working on a gap one. <laughs> I'll for sure have it solved by then. (laughs) But you never know, because physics, you know, we could discover something completely new in physics tomorrow that will completely unmake everything we thought we knew yesterday. And that's how this stuff works. It's science. Mm -hmm. It's fine. Yeah, we get we get new data. So remember those things we you know didn't include in our population growth models. What if we discover that uh, one factor we uh, uh, you know didn't include was that. There is a dimensional portal that is sucking people out of our city and depositing them on a distant <laughs> planet. That would be something unexpected that we'd have no clue how to model because we didn't know this thing existed or could exist. But this, I, yeah. I think this idea <laughs> that we keep hitting in things like, especially something like Star Trek or other kinds of science fiction that posit this like ascended energy being version of reality, which is not exactly what they're doing here, but it's very similar. Like, you know, space, time, and thought are all the same thing. It, people want to ignore the fun, not just 
time limited, not limited in the sense of we are all going to have a finite existence, etc., but just our perceptually limited, our understanding limited version of existing. Like humans have a certain way of perceiving the world that doesn't show you everything. It just can't. And we've used technology to expand that to a certain degree, but even that is somewhat limited. And even the questions that we ask, the things that we think of making, the ways that we try to perceive the world are limited by our own understanding of what we possibly could. The fact that we have calculated and can use those calculations to model things and those models continue to hold up, the fact that space and time are the same thing, just sort of mushed together in a weird way, that doesn't affect you. You fundamentally can't see that. And it's impossible for you to see that because you as an entity are interacting with space and time as different things. Yeah. Uh, I guess one can talk about the mathematical structures put together to help someone sort of see that. But even still, you're only seeing the the... I guess the, 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 you're seeing part of the code, but not the process, as they say. And I feel like people are fundamentally uncomfortable with the idea that we just can't know stuff. I think that this is one of the places where we're getting with some of our modern scientism. Because there's a lot of stuff that you just... Like, even with science, scientific models are a very good way to explain and test certain very specific things, but very, very bad for testing or explaining other things. But we want to try to apply science to all kinds of things where it shouldn't be. Like the way that we keep trying to explain how your mind works with science. So much of that is subjective reality, and you cannot explain something subjective scientifically because it's impossible to test. Indeed. If, it's, if you are presenting something that is not testable, then it stops being science. And that's why I don't like string theory. <laughs> <laughs> and we wind up with these things. I was just pointed to this article, this like uh, broader study that was done talking about all these um, like neuroscience studies. And I'm not saying that neuroscience itself is completely flawed. I think it's used to explain things in a very flawed way a lot of the time. But one of the reasons is that a lot of these sort of CAT scan studies where we say like, well, we know the brain works in this certain way because in this study we saw that you know all the blood in your brain goes to this part of your brain when we show you a picture of a dog so that's the dog part of your brain those studies are done on an average of like 25 people yeah, so it could work for these baby <laughs> like like it's because of funding limitations and some other things i'm not criticizing the people doing the studies but mm -hmm. that's just not a large enough sample size to say anything but we talk like it is because we say we've done science and people who don't understand how science works hear the word science and go, well, this must be the thing that we know now. Science is much more. So, uh, Gepwin, do you want to learn about some general relativity? Sure. That seems like this wouldn't work with general relativity, sort of generally. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I guess yeah, Star no. Trek doesn't work with general relativity at all, so... Not, not generally, uh, <laughs> though uh, they do, uh, you know, the, I, I guess, uh, I want to make sure I want to pronounce this right here. So the Abculier 
drive. Am I, mm. not, am I pronouncing that drive? Right? I don't. Is that the new thing? Is that the, wait? Is that the explosion one, or is that the one that would need negative time space to exist? Uh, the, the latter. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's probably the closest thing we have to uh, a theoretical theoretical working model of warp drive uh, that you would basically tilt space time in such a way that you would accelerate an object within this sort of bubble of space time, uh, you know, to superliminal velocities that would, you know, be able to get you to, you know, deep space, you know, liquidly split. Yeah. Essentially it'd be like if you had a boat that instead of pushing itself with propellers, moved the water in front of it to behind it. Yes. <laughs> Which, you know, is sort of, well, I guess it's maybe more complicated than that. It's more, it's, it's sort of like it sucks the water from below the boat in front to above it and behind. So it's like splashing outward. It basically would create a constant wave that the boat then surfs yes. on. <laughs> and so you would uh, surf forward with it uh, and uh, get to where you need to be going. Which essentially, even if you think about it with water, that's impossible with our current understanding of physics. Yeah, so uh, the uh, the... The trouble is, in order to create that full tilt in space-time, uh, they usually are like, yes, we're going to have to find something that effectively gives us the ability to negatively uh, uh, spend space-time instead of, you know, you know like, no, you know, the inverse of normal matter. So instead of, uh, you know, a, a planet pulling you down, it's going to be a negative planet that pushes you away. Dark so if energy. anyone knows where to get... Yeah, yeah. So, so if anyone knows where to get some of that, let us know so we can actually build this. But it's one of those things where it's a fun theoretical sort of model, but without solving that one bit there, it's once again impossible to test. And so it's it's sort of one of those things that, yeah, it's a cool thing and would be our closest analogous uh, thing to you know warp drive from Star Trek, but it requires things that seem very impossible right now. I remember a few years ago, everyone was talking about this and somebody was like, I've created an experiment where I can do this experiment and see if this one thing happens. And if this one thing happens, then we know that building this drive is possible. And then you never heard of it again. Yes. Yeah, I do occasionally hear it's like, oh, here's maybe a alternative to this that, you know, having, uh, you know, negative mass sort of stuff there. Uh, but uh, once again, it d hasn't really uh, materialized as far as uh, my, what I've encountered as far as uh, uh, reading goes. So uh, if folks who are listening are a little bit more up to date on this one in particular, do let me know because I'd be actually interested in reading more provided as from someone who's not like just, you know, a flake or something like that. Of course, mm. there's plenty of people that claim to do lots of things out there and they send, you know, emails to uh, scientists claiming that they've solved all their problems for them. And you're like, no, this, what? No, this, this is how science works again. <sighs> well, even generally with like the warp drive and stuff, this is one of the reasons that it's ridiculous if anyone calls tries to call Star Trek a hard sci-fi show. It's like, mm -hmm. how does faster than light travel work? Oh, it makes physics stop behaving the way you think it does. It's like, oh, okay. Yes. How does this thing that's mm -hmm. not warp drive but works better work? Oh, we use thought to make physics stop working the way you think it does. <laughs> so uh you know either way it's sort of a uh we uh, some some magic happens and then <laughs> yeah but uh 
But I guess uh, you know, the the end of the day, right now, I have more uh, trust in building a working time machine than I do uh, an Albuquerque uh, uh, drive. Is it a forward-backward time machine, or is it one of those ones where you theoretically could create a stable time loop? Well, uh, if you uh, have uh, established a infinitely long uh, material, uh, you know, column of matter that slowly rotates, uh, you can go back in time anytime you like. Oh, fun! So get on that. But you need to build one first, <laughs> and then you can only really go back until the, you know the, when it was created, I guess. Alternatively, we could spin the entire universe. Isn't it already spinning? Possibly. Yeah, maybe. Everything's always <laughs> spinning. Isn't that relativity? Depending on where you're standing, everything's always spinning just around wherever you happen to be observing from. Yeah, but this would be like super spinning. And specifically around a specific point. <laughs> but it's all moving around every point. How do you get it to move around one point? To rearrange the entire universe. Okay. So if we completely change the way <laughs> physics works, it's possible. <laughs> No, no, you know, moving stars and entire galaxies just takes time and a, and a lot of energy. But you can still do it. <laughs> Possibly more energy than is contained in those stars and galaxies. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, it's a problem. But, you know, it's, it's an engineering thing. I'll let them worry about it. I guess if we figure out where the frick all of this dark energy that's moving the universe <laughs> apart constantly is coming from, we could have an infinite energy supply. True. <laughs> Then the universe starts collapsing, and then uh, we have some uh, super geniuses get weirded out about it sometime in the far future era. Yeah. But anyway, uh, quick uh, rundown of uh, how how to uh, you know, do some general relativity if you're so inclined. First, get yourself a metric. It's sort of like a, a matrix, but it's not quite. Uh, that represents how space-time looks in your general vicinity, right? Uh, mm. So it's going to be something that uh, has a an element for time. Uh, and time, an element for the x direction and x direction, y direction, y direction, z and z. But there's also going to be elements that are time and z direction potentially, or x and y. And this is yeah. You know, and, and you know, if you have flat space time, these off terms are you know in the corners of your matrix, they just are generally going to be zero. But if you have something interesting going on, they could be not zero. So do worry about that. Anyway, so you got yourself a matrix, right? Uh, a, 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 a metric tensor. And this metric tensor, then you can use to create something uh, that is a, called a Christoffel symbol, uh, which involves taking derivatives with respect to various uh, coordinates uh, and then adding them and subtracting them and then uh, multiplying them by the, uh, basically sort of an inverse version of the met uh, metric there. And then you divide it by half. That's you get your Christoffel symbol. All right, you follow along, Gibbon, right? Sure, we're going to a Chris Christopherson matrix, matrix as far as I've gotten. Well, the symbolic version, yes. <laughs> so then you go from there to get your, uh, you know, your Riemann curvature tensor. Now you take your Christoffel symbols and you, uh, you know, arrange them a certain way. So you're multiplying uh, elements, you're adding them, you're also taking derivatives of them, and you're doing those, you know, sort of a derivative of the, of the Christoffel symbols added up in a special way. Minus a different derivative added up in a certain way, plus the multiplication bits minus different multiplication bits. Got that? Yeah, I think you said Riemanns, which don't show up for a while. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so Riemanns curvature tensor doesn't show up for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not until the last movie. 
Yes. Uh, uh, they also show up in Enterprise for, briefly. Um, then you go for your Reese tensor, which is like a grieving curvature tensor, but you're uh, you know you're linking a couple of the uh, the uh, elements together. Like chocolate and peanut butter. So you go from a four dimensional sort of uh, tensor to a two dimensional one, effectively. Um, but it's still going, you know, X, Y, Z in time, sort of all through those coordinate systems and actual uh, spatial sort of, you know, explanations there. Uh, and so with the Ricci tensor, you can go another step. You can then link, you know, you could, uh, you know, you know, you know, link those two remaining, uh, you know, uh, parts of the tensor together to get the Ricci scalar. And then you get the, so then at the end, you're like the Ricci tensor minus one half the Ricci scalar times the metric that's from the very start equals eight pi G over the speed of light to the fourth power times your, uh, you know, stress energy tensor. And that's, uh, that's Einstein's equation for general relativity. Hi, fun. <laughs> I understood some of that. <laughs> so you know so basically i explained this very long process to go from the the the, the uh the, the metric to this stress energy tensor right mm -hmm. you know you do derivatives you add and subtract things you multiply here and there and there's all these little bits that fiddle together and it ends up with a stress energy tensor you look at the stress energy tensor and that's what you can actually see in the universe so this is what Okay, there's planets. This will result in a stress energy tensor like this. We need to come up with a metric based on this. So how do we get back to the metric from the very start of that whole process? You do all of it backwards. Well, that would be nice to do, but how? <laughs> well, if I remember right, you took a couple of derivatives. So I'm going to say you do the integrals instead, because that's as far well, in math as I got. You know, there, well, there's derivatives of derivatives, and they're also over various coordinates. And sometimes you're kind of dropping things off because they cancel out. Because, you know, if you're adding and subtracting the same elements together, then weird stuff could happen. But those things are still important for determining the, the metric there. But they've now vanished from your final equation. Oh, I, no. I can't do derivatives of derivatives. <laughs> I never finished Diffie Q. <laughs> so basically, it's a very complicated differential equation that is solvable in simple situations where you can kind of make some assumptions once again about how things are working. But if you start sort of uh, diverging from that easy set of models, then it's just a mess and you just have to sort of try to calculate it uh, numerically instead. And then you don't really have a nice fun equation at the end. It's like, all right, the, met, uh, the tensor, uh, the metric is looking like this. We think, but we're not quite sure. So that's annoying. So long story short, general relativity as well understood and as solid uh, of uh, a theory as it is at this point is still a pain in the ass to actually use for basically any big stuff. Fine. But people try. <laughs> well, if I remember right, if you want an easy way to think about general relativity, the only thing that I remember is once you accept that the speed of light is constant and can never, ever, ever change, and then you start thinking about what if you have something interacting with light that's moving at near light speeds, everything gets weird. Yeah. Because <laughs> the speed of light can't change, so everything around it must be changing. To a degree, yes. 
Uh, though that's more special relativity. Uh, oh, okay. Though, though, though general relativity does still matter as far as that, you know, the, you know, the speed of light being constant stuff. Cause if you're sort of accelerating upward on a, uh, elevator through space, it feels the same as the elevator just sitting, no- doing nothing on a planet. Yep. But light is curved either way. <laughs> At least as far as you're observing it. <laughs> So that's my uh, long uh, prattle about uh, general relativity. Should I talk about the Virgo Silver Cluster next? <laughs> that's the one. Is that ours? <laughs> no, it's a bit further off. Uh, yeah. It's like 30, 40 million light years. So it's it's beyond M33 here. But it's a, uh, a good sort of well-known thing to sort of talk about as far as, you know. So the, they are very far from home in this episode. Yes. But they're not as far as they could be. <laughs> so I know this on the thing. Is this still in our own galactic cluster? Um, well, there's our local group, and it's not super clustery, uh, really, but it is sort of doing its own thing. The Virgo cluster is uh, a, a bit bigger, and it's kind of off, you know, a bit. This one I know, that for, for whatever reason, galaxies lump together into sort of local clustery groups those are mm-hmm. even further away from each other than galaxies are and it would basically yes. be impossible with anything that we understand to be able to travel between those indeed and so the you know the virgo cluster is you know you know tens of uh, millions of light years away and this is much further than m33 that was presented in this episode but even that is like you know around a thousandth of the size of the observable universe away from us yep yeah <laughs> so that's so just to sort of give you you know uh, you know our listeners a, a little bit of a whoa moment the universe as i said before is really big really big space is big and as far off as going to the delta quadrant or m33 or even a billion light years away in this thought dimension place the universe is even bigger than that. So uh, just remember that when uh, you know, we're, we're, you're, you're feeling uh, that you know, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're not good enough or anything like that and the, the world's you know, big and scary. It's like, no, the planet Earth's actually quite small. Yeah, we're all you may small think it's here. a long way down the street to the chemist. That's just peanuts to space. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I was also going to talk about uh, you know, ranges of speeds here, but I think I'm running out of time of being a science geek here. <laughs> I do think it's an interesting one. We keep talking about, oh, what if we could explore other galaxies and all this fancy stuff? Even something like Star Trek, which has invented like future technology that allows us to do interstellar travel, admits that it would be thousands and thousands of generations before we'd even explored a good tenth of our own galaxy. Indeed. <laughs> you know, I think in this episode's like we've only explored like eleven percent after centuries now, so <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like that. It's like how everyone ta- it keeps talking about how interesting and fun space exploration is, and I think it's like I like imagining the stuff as much as anyone, but we've still barely explored thirty percent of our own dang planet. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I guess there's plenty of frontiers to reach at for our folks. So, if you want to explore, and you can. That's not even see. That's mm-hmm. the ocean thing. Everyone knows yeah. the ocean thing. 
But there are freaking animals that live on these high up cliff things in the middle of South America that no one's seen. They keep discovering new stuff down there because it's just so hard to hike to some of these places. Like, no one, never let anyone tell you that we've explored everything on Earth because we haven't. Exactly. So, uh, you know, if you want to go to space or not, there's things to explore. If you don't want to go to space, yeah, just get on a, a, a bit of a trail off into the mountains and you'll find something. Or go yeah, under the I'll sea. I'll tell you, or... exploring those things does not pay well. That's the problem. Yes. <laughs> you can become a bird scientist and go to any of these weird little places in South America, but you're not getting funding for it. Hmm. Well, maybe we should change our priorities as a society. So we I can... know. You know, if we spent as much on that as we did on making any of these uh, Elon Musk rockets, we'd know a lot more about our local species. Hey, uh, Elon Musk, uh, get your head out of your backside and, like, Help actual stuff what would, here. What would, what would happen if he tried to do that? He'd probably just try to build a tunnel to the top of the mountain to study birds. That'd be so weird. Okay, okay uh, find someone who knows what they're doing and have them do good stuff. <laughs> oh, that's going to get us in trouble. Oof. <laughs> uh, I know. Let's tax him. Yeah, that would work. <laughs> we've, we've looped back around. I have no idea why everyone thinks it's so surprising that people who have watched Star Trek their entire lives and are giant fans of it happen to be socialists, but for some reason this keeps shocking people. Surprise! <laughs> oh, uh, well, I am going to do one more, one more statistic, though. Mm-hmm. Right? So the, uh, the uh, seven tera-electron volt protons in Large Hadron Collider, mm. uh, they travel close to the speed of light. In fact, they're just about two meters per second below the speed of light. So uh, you could outrun the, the difference in velocities there. Nice. <laughs> That's fun. Okay, the random, this is my random contribution, which is not much of anything, but you said matrices a lot, which reminded me of my one the one joke that i can only tell other math people and we'll see if anyone who listens to this episode actually gets it (laughs) so what do you get when you cross a duck and a squirrel i do not know but is orthogonal to both the duck and the squirrel (laughs) that is true That's mostly what I got out of 15 math classes in college. And yeah, just remember your right hand rule, folks. It'll all come together. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's I I don't know. This this is what happens when they present us with an episode that tries to do big ideas but is mostly like, "Hey, here's a magic alien." Yep. <laughs> it's like, "Okay, we can kind of touch on some big ideas, I guess." Mm-hmm. But where what now? Yeah, it's fun. It's it's not a bad episode, and it's presenting some interesting stuff, but most of the episode is, look, a magic alien. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, that's cool. Um, so, uh, want to be silly and do a game show bit? Yeah, we could do that, and I think it's the thing that we call the galaxy's favorite game show! Woo! Hey everybody, welcome to the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show. We got some uh, high scores today, and uh, well, 
you know, we decided to uh, to limit some of the prizes here a little bit, but uh, we're going to be handing out uh, a few of them all the same to uh, some, uh, you know, some good folks here. But for some reason, we just keep imagining the scores are getting higher, and they somehow do. I don't know what's happening here. Anyway, the first prize is the freaking Wizards Prize, which goes to the entire crew of the Enterprise for their ability to summon up reality alterations on a whim, but only while they're in the warp thought dimension, a.k.a. imagination land. What do they win, Captain? I think the entire crew of the Enterprise needs some creativity and exercises, some books, booklets. Like There's, there's things you can do. Because, my God, these are the most boring fantasies. <laughs> that is true. Uh, I wonder if... Yes. <laughs> it's like, I want to get burned today. Uh, uh-oh, I'm getting burned. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of unfortunate. Our uh, second prize is the There's Your Warp Bubble Prize, which goes to the travel traveler for showing off his super advanced warp techniques to a minor. I mean, uh, or, um, I mean the audience, yes. What does he win, Gapwin? The Traveler wins someone keeping an eye on these people. You let a random frickin' alien who no one's ever seen before and no one's ever heard of just randomly travel around with the Starfleet dude for no reason. What in the world happened to seek out new life? <laughs> He's right here. You just beamed him aboard. What now, guys? <laughs> yeah, it's like, hey, we've never seen your species before. Eh. <laughs> Our third prize is the Tragedy of Errors prize, uh, which goes to Krasinski for stumbling his way to success through the unknowing use of an alien Uber being. What does he win, Gapwin? He wins that in a few hundred years, when everyone's kind of forgotten about all of this, they're going to write an addition to one of these dumb kids' book that is, everything was invented by accident, and he's going to be in there as accidentally you know, finding an alien who invented Super Warp Drive. It's just right next to the weird hypocritical thing about somebody firing pizza dough out of a cannon and making spaghetti. Hmm. Yeah, that's going to be a, an awkward uh, uh, read there for those uh, future children. Hopefully they get beyond it and uh, find some actual history books to uh, to enjoy. Hmm, but yeah, that's all I got here for today. Oh, keep up with the Let's take us out of here before these uh, scores go any higher. Yeah, I imagine that we're done. So thank you for joining us on the galaxy's <laughs> favorite game show. Woo! So uh, that was a little bit of meander. Yeah, it's fine. I I feel like we're going to get way more meandering next week. So I guess this was practice. Yeah, the... Uh... The, uh, the next one is called Lonely Among Us, and I've seen this episode a few times, and it's one of those that is just like, wh- why are we, wh- what is going on here? Yeah. Really? So, yeah, I've seen this episode, you know, half dozen times on my various watch throughs. It's, it's not one that's like, you know, skip worthy or anything, mm-hmm. but it's one that every time I watch it, I go, oh yeah, that was happening in this episode. You remember all the individual pieces of it, but you don't remember what, why any of them were happening or that they were all happening at the same time. Indeed. It's just sort of a scattershot of first season Star Trek just kind of 
collected into a singular episode. We got a weird plot. We got some aliens. We got some interactions going on here. Uh, war falls down, you know, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. You got yeah. a lot of weird things. <laughs> There's just a lot of weird things completely disconnected. Uh, the A plot and the B plot have nothing to do with each other, even slightly, even though it has kind of a funny B plot that I wish they'd done more with. Yes. Uh, I think Lower Decks might reference uh, the, the folks involved in the B plot at some point, but uh, yeah, we can talk about that later. I think they might. The only notable thing about this is that this is going to be the first appearance of one of the great Star Trek guest stars. <gasps> Who? We'll just have to tune in next week to find out on Watches of Tomorrow. Done. <laughs> next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Worf is sus. have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more, and where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Mori's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs>